why is the preaching of the gospel such an urgent task? Why? What is it that the gospel provides that should compel each one of us to tell others about the Lord Jesus Christ? It's not about winning an argument. It's not about winning them over to your way of thinking. I'm right, you're wrong, and I'm setting out to prove it. It's not a battle of philosophical viewpoints or your worldview versus mine. It's not about wanting them to embrace a certain lifestyle. It's not even about wanting them to find purpose and meaning in life. Now, something of all of those things do come into it, but they are not the main things. That's not what lies at the heart of it all. That's not what is the crux of the matter. So what is? Paul tells us. Here's another question. Why does the Bible describe you as being the greatest fool if you've rejected the gospel? Which is not a slur against your mental capacities. Foolishness in the Bible is not lack of learning or knowledge or education. Foolishness in the Bible is the opposite of wisdom. You can have much learning, much knowledge, much education. But the Bible says you can still be a fool. The fool says in his heart, this is God's definition of a fool. The fool says in his heart, her heart, there is no God. And if that's why you've rejected the gospel, then God, through his word, declares you to be a fool. The first verses of Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 make that very clear. Perhaps, though, you do believe that there is a God, but you've invented a God of your own. Or perhaps you've accepted a God that someone else invented. Or you believe that whilst God exists, he, it, whatever God is, cannot be known, cannot be defined, cannot be, as some people might say, put in a box. In other words, you say that you believe in God, but you reject the God of the Bible. I know my own heart on the matter, you might say. I've heard people say that kind of thing. I, I know my own heart on the matter about God. Well, we read in Proverbs, a fool has no delight in understanding, but in expressing his own heart. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool, says God's word. Or perhaps you say that you believe in the God of the Bible, you believe that he is, but you do not believe what he says. Well, if that's your position, I have news for you. You actually don't believe in the God of the Bible because the God of the Bible says that he is truth and he cannot lie. Or maybe you do, you do believe that this Bible, this God of the Bible is God and that you accept that what God says is true and yet you 
still reject the gospel. In which case you are like those to whom Jesus spoke, who believed in God, but who rejected him as the Christ. And because of that, Jesus said that they were facing a judgment even more severe than the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. You see, I dare not leave you in ignorance of what the Bible says on these issues. I dare not. It's a matter of your eternal life or death, you see. I wonder, are you someone who actually knows and acknowledges the truth of the gospel, yet you still refuse to turn to Christ? And are you, like some of the people I've spoken to over the years, and the reason that you give for not being able to accept the gospel is that you look at the lives of those who confess to be Christians, you look at the church in general, you look at individual churches in particular, and you see all kinds of inconsistencies and hypocrisy. Guilty as charged. Everyone else in this room should have their hand up too. That's us. Full of inconsistencies. Sometimes hypocritical. We have not yet been made perfect. One day we shall be. It's a wide road. And it's signposted eternal condemnation this way. It's a very easy road to walk. It takes very little effort. You can do anything you like whilst you make your journey. And it seems as if most of the world are on it. Just over there, there's a narrow path. Far fewer people are on the path. And you can see that it's a much more difficult route to follow. And it requires far greater effort than the wide road. And the people on the wide road are shouting all kinds of slurs and ridicule and insults at those pathetic ones over there struggling on the path. And you've seen that the way that those people got to that road is because there is one who goes to and fro between these two roads. And he keeps coming over to the wide road and inviting people to the path. Many refuse. Some hurl abuse. But there are those who respond and he takes them across and he sets them going on their way on the narrow path. And you watch them and you see many of them struggling and faltering. Some of them keep straying off the path. Some are finding it very hard to shake off all the kinds of behaviours that really only should be found on the wide road. And based upon what you observe in each of them, you decide it can't be all that it's cracked up to be, because they should be better than that. And that's why, many times, you've refused the invitation from the one going to and fro between the two paths. but you've failed to notice something very important. 
The one who took them to the path also keeps drawing alongside them on the path. And when they're struggling and failing, he puts his arm around their shoulder and he encourages them on. And those who've wandered far away from the path, he keeps guiding them back and putting their feet right again. And the reality is, for all of their faults and failures, for all of their struggles and failings, they're all pressing on and they're all making progress. And one day, despite all of their inadequacies, the one who placed them on the road will ensure that each one of them reaches their journey's end. And you can see the signpost. Eternal life this way. But you've chosen to stay on the wide road which leads to eternal destruction. And you kept refusing the one who alone can take people from the one road to the other. And why? Because you keep looking at them when you should be looking at him. Maybe today is the day to put that right. And look at him. Listen again to what he offers you. And that he will assure you in his gospel of saving good news. Now last week we were in Romans chapter 5 and there we looked at the facts of sin. Through Adam all have sinned. Through sin death comes to all. Through sin all are condemned. And now we turn to these opening two chapters of Romans where Paul sheds further light on this whole issue of sinfulness and condemnation and here we shall see more clearly the results of sin. What sin actually does in the world and in sinful human people. Three headings. Here's the first one. Personal ungodliness, unrighteousness and wickedness. No exceptions. The starting point is chapter 1 verse 18. Ungodliness. Ungodliness. Men and women were created by God to be in the likeness of himself, in his image. Not to be exact replicas of God, but to be a reflection of everything that is good in God. To have a nature that is pleasing to God and to be acceptable to him. Certain qualities and characteristics which are so reminiscent of God himself that compared to the rest of his creation, it might be said of men and women that we are God-like or godly. Things with God, things that we share in common with God, not to the same degree or extent as they're found in God, but so that there would nevertheless be an unmistakable resemblance as to from where we came. We're in God's image. And so chiefly God made us in the first instance to be without sin and therefore to be pure and undefiled 
and loving and kind and gentle and faithful and patient and humble and obedient and so on. In short, to be godly and righteous, only to think and do that which is pleasing to God. But our natures have become completely depraved. Instead of godliness and righteousness, we are the opposite of that and we have plunged ourselves into rebellion and disobedience against him. Look at the second half of verse 21 of Romans 1. They became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Futile thinking, foolish hearts in darkness instead of being in light. Your mind has become depraved so that you think about unrighteous and wicked things. And men and, men and women are convinced that with their minds they'll be able to fathom out this universe and everything in it and where it came from and how it came to be. But the last thing they're going to believe is what the Bible has to say about it all. The Bible calls this futile thinking, worthless thinking, no hope in sight thinking, no way of ever arriving at the right answer thinking, futile. Paul teaches in these verses, your heart has become depraved so that your emotions and your affections are warped and twisted. You put those things together and you have men and women who are running riot in their wickedness as they're led by their passions and lusts and desires. They've abandoned the truth, preparing, preferring instead to turn to their own opinions and preferences on all of these things. Rather than give God the place he deserves, they think more of themselves and the world that they live in. Instead of worshipping and serving the creator, they worship and serve the things he's created. So people today think far more of Mother Earth than they do of our Father who is in heaven, don't they? That's idolatry. And sexual immorality of every sort can be found as they satisfy their lusts. Sexual intimacy was given to us by God. It was created by God. It's created to be experienced between a man and a woman in the covenant bond of marriage. And even the emotional and physical desires and pleasures of it are described by God as being pure and good as long as it remains within that God-ordained framework of marriage. But in our sin, it's all been horribly warped and defiled and twisted. And they are, verse 28, the result of having a mind which is no longer godly but debased. And men and women revel and rejoice in that which is not fitting. And some people are horrified at the suggestion that they would be lumped in with all of that really nasty stuff, or where it all talks about all of this sexual immorality and things of that nature. They wouldn't be found dead doing those sorts of things, and actually often they wouldn't. But oh, so many more of their judgments and affections and choices are still nevertheless depraved 
by sin. Because Paul goes on, pride and selfishness, being boastful, being covetous, being envious, malicious, which is to think bad of people and wish them bad. Look at that long list from verse 30. Things which destroy relationships and families and community life. Not only that, we encourage one another in these things and we rejoice when we see other people doing it. What a description of 21st century Britain that is. Now you may be shocked and saddened by the way you have seen things change in our society in recent years and you should be. You may be surprised at the speed with which all of this has changed. It's been remarkable hasn't it? But that these things have happened at all should not surprise you. It shouldn't. If it does, you haven't been reading your Bible recently. Because what we see all around us in the world now, that is all the nature of sin. And it's all here. It was written down 2,000 years ago. This is what sin looks like. Note what the Apostle says at verse 32 of chapter 1. All of these things, all of them, even being a troublesome whisperer and a gossip, even being boastful, being disobedient to your parents, all of these things are deserving of death. All of them. And it's worth noting something that Paul says three times in chapter 1 because some of you, as you watch our country free-falling ever deeper into immorality you struggle to see where is God in all of this why is this happening to our country why does God let this happen well note what God says at verse 24 therefore God gave them up to their uncleanness verse 26 God gave them up to their vile passions verse 28 God gave them over to a debased mind. There comes a point and God says, that's really what you want? Fine, have it. And look what happens. God abandons them into their ungodliness, unrighteousness and wickedness. And you will reap what you sow. You will reap what you sow. Is that the explanation for what we see happening all around us in our nation today? I suspect it probably is. God has given them what they want. And they will reap what they sow. That's why they need the gospel. Because it's the only thing that will change them. Personal ungodliness, unrighteousness and wickedness are no exceptions. Paul means everyone and in case you're in any doubt, he says so expressly in chapter 3. There is none righteous, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Point two. And this is a little point 
sandwiched in between two bigger ones. Personal guilt and accountability. No excuses. Did you see what we read? Verse 21, for example. Although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. Verse 25, they've exchanged the truth of God for the lie. Verse 32, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death. They know, and still they do it, and approve of those who do the same. At the opening verse of chapter 2, therefore, you are inexcusable. You have no excuse. The knowledge that God is, is written into the heart and conscience of everyone. A basic recognition of right and wrong and good and evil is written into the soul of everyone. We are not so debased that we've lost that. And they choose the wrong over the right and they know they're doing it. And they choose the good over the evil and they know they're doing it. And they do it anyway and they do it deliberately and they do it willfully and there is no excuse. You are guilty before God and there is no excuse you will ever be able to bring to him. And because of that, point three, you are facing personal judgment and there's no escape. Everyone is caught up in this sin. There are no exceptions. Everyone before God is personally guilty and accountable and there are no excuses. And all of you, everyone in this world, faces personal judgment and there's no escape. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And the wrath of God will conclude in judgment And here's an irony in the opening verses of chapter 2. Even guilty sinners stand in judgment over sin. <laughs> you who are judge, you judge others and condemn them. But you yourself are guilty of the same things. How dare you? What an irony. Sinners calling out sin in others. But they're equally guilty and they'll be judged just the same. And we see here that God's judgment, verse 2 of chapter 2, will be according to his truth. How is God going to judge these people? He's going to judge them according to his truth, his standard, his measure, his insight, 
his perfect wisdom, his record of your wrongs. And it will be fair and right and just. God's judgment will be according to your deeds, verses 5 and 6 of chapter 2. So it will be personal. He will render to each according to his deeds. It'll do you no good trying to claim innocence or pointing the finger at others. It will be you standing before God in all of the sins that you've accumulated throughout your life, treasuring up God's wrath and judgment against you. It will be personal and there will be no escape. And we also read that God's judgment will be according to his law, verses 12 to 15 of chapter 2. Now what is Paul saying there? Those who've sinned without law and those who've sinned in the law and Gentiles and Greeks, what's he saying? The Jews had God's written law and they sinned in full knowledge of it and God will judge them accordingly. Many Gentiles have never seen God's law, never read a Bible, but there's enough of God's law in their conscience for God to still judge them fairly. They have done things that they knew were wrong and their conscience is, su is such that the thing that they knew was wrong in their own heart is that which God's word also says is wrong because that's the nature of the human conscience. They've never read, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not covet, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery. But those things are embedded in their conscience. And in societies that have never seen a Bible, those kinds of things are known to be wrong. And they've known the guilt and shame of living contrary to those things. They knew it was wrong and they still did it. And God will judge them accordingly. So they did have the law of God, but in a different way to the Jews. The Jews had it written down in black and white. But even if you've never seen the print, there's still enough of it in your own conscience and heart for God to condemn you. You knew your guilt when you did it, is what Paul is teaching here. And all the things that you'd managed to keep secret, verse 16 of chapter 2, will come out. They'll all come out. The famous author, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, uh, is recorded as being a man who loved playing practical jokes on people. And it's said that one day he decided to play a prank on some people. He wrote a note to 12 of his friends who were all fairly notable people in London society. He was curious to see how they would respond to his note. He wrote exactly the same thing to all 12. And the note simply said this, Flee! All is revealed! And it's reported that within 24 hours, all of them had left London and at least four had left the country. 
all the secret things. Don't you tell me you haven't got any. God knows them. Even all the secret things, all the thoughts and intents of the heart, God knows. They'll all be dealt with on that day. And for the guilty, verses 8 to 9 of chapter 2, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil. Why is the preaching of the gospel such an urgent task? That's the question we began with. Why is it such an urgent task? What is it that the gospel provides that should compel each of us to tell others about the Lord Jesus Christ? Because of what's in these verses, that's why. That's what it's all about. One day you will stand before God in all your sin. But God has given you the solution. Let me tell you about Christ. Because you see, don't lose sight of verse 4 of chapter 2 in the midst of all this. Do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Did, did Did you overlook that in the midst of all the sin? There's an answer to this. There's an answer to this. Or verse 7. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good. Those who are in Christ and doing that which is right and pleasing in the eyes of God. Verse 10. Glory, honour and peace to everyone who works what is good. And that's the point you see. Despite the awful reality of sin. And that's where Paul chooses to begin. The awful reality of sin that's laid bare in these verses. There is hope and there is an answer and there is a solution. That's what makes the gospel so urgent and that's what the gospel is all about. Whilst that dreadful day of judgment is looming ever closer, ever larger, it hasn't arrived yet. And in his, in his goodness, God is exercising long-suffering, patience, forbearance. And today is still a day of grace when men and women may be saved. And God extends the offer of the gospel that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That whosoever believes upon the Lord Jesus Christ shall not perish but have everlasting life. He'll take you off that road and he'll put you on the path and he'll keep you there and he'll make sure you get to journey's end. He's still calling sinners to repentance and to faith and to forgiveness and to be reconciled to God. Have you heard him calling you? And if you have, why have you not yet come? 
He's calling people from the wide road that leads to destruction, to the narrow path, which leads to life everlasting. But one day, and we don't know which day, but one day, this age of gospel grace will come to an end. And it will be too late. And that's why it's urgent. That's why preaching the gospel is an urgent task. This is what the gospel provides that should compel each of us to want to tell others about Christ. When that day comes, they won't be at the place of destruction. They'll be at the place of life everlasting. This is why Paul talks so plainly about these things at the start of his letter before he goes on to speak about the wonders of the doctrines of grace and about the glories of Christ. In your sins, only God's wrath and judgment and eternal condemnation. But in the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and mercy and pardon and life everlasting.